In a world full of misery, rage, and insomnia, there's a place you can go to just unwind. All you have to do is take a long walk into the mountains, and just past the black house with the secret garden, you'll find a small cabin. Inside that cabin, you'll find the Hole in the Wall Book Club. So now that the Dreamcatcher's hung and the fire started, we invite you to pull up a chair and join the Losers Club as we explore the world of harmless little tricks and gyrating with Elvis. You know, the last thing we said before we started recording was it won't be shitty. We got this. How do we start this show? <laughs> Hello, oh, welcome oh. to Hole in the Wall Book Club. I, I'm I'm icy and be nice to me. I'm still running a fever of like 100 degrees. So today's episode is going to be shitty and I'm blaming it on that. And here <laughs> is my best friend. Uh, Mark as usual. I like that name for you, Mark as usual. Mm. Yeah, I think it. I think it just stuck when I was listening to the previous recordings and everything like that. Um, I was like, "Yeah, that's just me, just Mark." Uh, either Mark the casual or Mark the usual. Like, just I'm just a simple guy. You just know? a simple guy who doesn't commit arson. No. Did you get a haircut? Uh, I did get a haircut. Um, I I took it to a very uh, a very esteemed. I took it to the absolute best barber in my entire house, which I live nice. alone. So that's me. Okay. Um, which is pretty impressive. I, I had drank a lot of bourbon that night. So the fact that this actually looks semi okay. It's definitely absolutely passable. Yeah. It's, this is a fucking miracle. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. But the, the, the fact that this looks like this, uh, like a, it was like, only my second time doing it and b i was pretty tanked i'm not gonna lie i was pretty i was pretty gone full on jack torrenting uh oh yeah well i, was, <laughs> I don't I know if i admit that <laughs> there's some those are some weighted words my friend we, we might have to dial that back down <laughs> um anyway so holy shit we have uh we did chapter 17 and 18 Shame uh, on us for thinking two chapters. We're going to be easy to discuss. You can always tell how nervous we are to fit it all in because we did we dicker more when uh, right. when we have a lot to get done. So we'll like waste a bunch of time just dickering about stuff. But, right. Yeah. This. So the whole structure of this, um, most of the sections in chapter 17 are very small and very yep. like quick fire. And we're cutting between like three major storylines. That's right. So bear with us. Yeah, and, and if any part of this episode seems chaotic and disorganized, um, I I want to defer to Stephen King. Yeah. Because that's actually the entire I, I would argue that that's actually the entire point of chapter 17 is to actually give you that element of chaos. We're we're gonna be talking about a lot of stuff here. I took more notes. We talked about this before the show. We both took more notes on this chapter than I think we ever have on an entire section i mean in fairness i may have taken more notes on this chapter than i did in college in general <laughs> right so i'm not that's a prestigious this, note taker but my god this section right and that's the thing so everything that we're about to talk about uh, a lot of times how this works you know sort of this is like behind the scenes vip pass sort of thing we might read a hundred pages and one of the chapters might be like 40 or 50 pages and i might write three or four lines of the things i thought that were the most critical and the things i wanted to talk about on the show right this 
Chapter 17 is filled with so much important information. I took like, I, and I told you this before, I took like 33 notes just on chapter 17. In the entire chapter, I was literally on the edge of my seat. I almost couldn't even work, by the way. I was like taking my lunch break, reading <laughs> when I could. And I was like taking a break during the afternoon, like trying to get a little bit more reading time in. I almost like forgot to cook dinner. Like that's chapter 17. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Let's stop dickering. Let's get into it. Because <laughs> right. so we, we start with Henry Beaufort, the guy who owns the bar. Uh, we just saw uh, one of the women that's cucking with uh, Elvis, like yep. rip up his with a sword. And he finds his car. He finds the note and he thinks through who have I cut off and also kept their keys recently. Hugh fucking priest. And yep. he heads to the bar to go get a shotgun because he's going to kill Hugh Priest. Yep. He remembers that he has a shotgun at his bar in a case. So he's going there. And let's go on to the next the next part. So do we want to go to the next scene of Hugh Priest or do we want to go to the next scene of the book? Ah, uh, okay. Uh, uh, let's check the Twitter poll. You know what? No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't very, know. Let's, the, okay, so the very next scene is we're skipping to Jewett. Uh, quick reminder, he's the principal child pedophile. Uh, you know, he thinks it's his old partner, friend Nelson. He goes, fucks up this guy's house, and literally shits on a photo of his mom. Oh, yeah. I, so we also find out George T. Nelson's a Coke dealer. Uh, yep. Frank flushes like 3000 bucks worth of Coke down his toilet. And then... The, you know, my stomach turned a little in this final bit. I was like, oh man, this is brutal. And then he literally just takes a big old nasty dump on a picture of the yeah. dude's mom. And I was yeah. like, I, I actually don't know how to cope with this. And the whole yeah. Frank storyline we see almost yeah. feels comedic, which yeah. right. it felt like it was supposed to be the comedic relief, which honestly makes me super uncomfortable with where this story started. Yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, big time. Uh, so from lightning round, we jump from there uh, and we see old Hugh Priest. And Hugh, yep. Hugh Priest is not doing well. He is like half fucking naked. We we see the foxtail from other people's perspective. And it's like a foxtail that's like chunks of rotten meat. Oh, yeah, up. it's like disgusting. It's like moth eaten and ugh. Yeah, and like he's like half naked. I think he's wearing that or like around his neck um and he jumps out in the road in front of lenny's car and we've like i don't think we've mentioned lenny on the podcast he's one of the old dudes that we've occasionally gotten like excerpts from i think like, yeah he's one of the people who commented on ace merrill when he arrived in town and yeah really old guy yeah hugh grabs lenny and throws him out of the car and like breaks his hip and his collarbone to steal his car Right, so he he has his car. The guy's old guy, all broken up. We literally go into the next scene. Back to Henry Buford. He's like at his bar, getting his gun, and then bam, we go to like the next scene. Yeah, uh, we get Billy, who is a underage kid. He's like a teenager who works at the bar, and he's trying to calm Henry down. Right. Yep. Sorry. I've I think heard, he I like he's like, hey, uh, I know you're going to go kill Hugh Priest before you go. Why don't we have a drink? Yeah, you got to have a drink to kill somebody, right? Which is completely fair. Uh, I would say that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just in the context. Yep. So then 
and then we we go back to Alan. Alan uh, again, they know they want to arrest Hugh Priest. They have the fingerprint and everything like that. And Alan sent one of his deputies to Hugh Priest's house just in case he's oh, there. Oh yeah, we got Alan. a short scene there. I think his name's Clutterbuck, and it was basically yeah. that he saw that Hugh Priest's car was there and he failed to notice Lenny in the road. Yep. Being broken and crying. And so Alan goes, he's on his way to Hugh's job to arrest him. Um, and then we get, a, we get a scene with Gaunt and Hugh. Uh, cause Hugh, Hugh is all fucked up. And Gaunt gives Hugh a gun and basically tells him to protect what's his. Oh, yeah. Because Hugh is terrified. Like, he, he killed, he destroyed my car. But what if he goes after the thing that's really important? This really shitty piece of meat hanging around my neck. Right. Gaunt's like, you're right, man. That is a good looking foxtail. Here is, here is an automatic pistol. Take this gun. Mm-hmm. All right. So then we have uh, we have Lester, again, the, the star-crossed lover, right? He thinks that Sally Ratcliffe is cheating on him with her old boyfriend. So he goes to John LaPointe, who's a deputy, and Lester literally just attacks this guy. So he, oh, yeah. he walks in, he's fighting him. And this guy was actually supposed to be, I think, Clutch backup or, or something. He was supposed to be somebody. Oh backup. yeah, I think I think Norris had just radioed in, being like, "Hey, Hugh's not at work today. John, get out there and back up." Uh, right. Clutter, Clucker, whatever. What if, what if, the other cop that I think this is the first time he's been mentioned. Clutter. Yeah, I think his I, I think his official name's Clusterfuck. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, something like that. I don't. Something along those lines. So yeah, know. Lester just decks him in the uh, police office. Uh, then we cut back to Henry's bar and you know what? Billy's plan worked. Henry's calmed down. We get this bit where Henry's like, you know, I can fix the car. It's not, I, I love that car. It's not worth going to jail for, you know what? My taxes at work, Alan will deal with this and everything is finally calm. And then Hugh's car pulls up or yeah. And this, so this is crazy. You're like, you're reading this, right? And like, you're like, oh yes, he great. He finally calmed down. This dude's literally about to be locked and loaded with a fucking shotgun then hugh priest pulls up and you know he has a he has a gun now too and then boom we're cutting scenes again yep we get this really short scene of lester just beating the shit out of john and he literally he literally breaks his nose and the dispatcher's like frantically calling alan like look oh what the hell like someone is in the station beating the hell out of uh john the point our deputy yeah and like when alan gets this call there's a ton of miscommunication he thinks it's lester uh sorry i've done it again i've done it again i have continuously mixed up lester and hugh's name to the point it's screwing up mark yeah (laughs) Uh, so when alan gets the call he thinks it's um hugh priest who is for some reason in the cop station right because uh, from alan's perspective hugh priest is the only real threat in town Right. You have the you have the fingerprint. He's he's your guy, right? And this that's logical, right? I mean, you have oh, yeah. a quiet you have a quiet town, something happened, now you finally have a suspect. You have no idea that the entire town has all of a sudden gone crazy. Oh, you have oh, no yeah. idea. All right. And so then, then go ahead. Then we go back to Frank Jewett, right? Oh god. This guy shits on the on this other guy's uh, his mom's picture and but he's not done yet he He literally sees this guy's pet bird he kills the pet bird this is the second time in this book where we've had a pet die and he kind of tortures it first like there's a a thing where he's like 
stabbing the knife into the cage to freak it out. And it literally says he does this for a while until he grows bored of it and just pierces the bird. Like, yo, dude, chill out. Right. Then this is like really weird. So he he gets a gun and he's like, he's like, has this idea. He all of a sudden gets really jolly. He starts singing like Santa's coming to town. He really likes people singing to show they're having a psychotic break. You know what this really reminded me of? Uh, this really reminded me of sort of the, I guess, the psychosis or the break from reality that Jack Torrance had. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Right. Where like he's singing, like he's like he's in his own completely different world. His values have changed. He's like, oh yeah, I'm about to kill somebody. No big deal. This things are yeah, great. He, he goes through this thought process where he's like, oh wait, if I leave and he sees this, he's gonna know it was me. Because yeah, in his in Frank's mind, this guy's blackmailing him. Like right. who else would it be? And he's like, he's gonna come kill me. And then he starts thinking like, but I could kill him. I could take one of his guns or one of his knives. Ooh, it'd be it'd feel really good to kill him with his own thing. Yep. And then he gets exactly. sleepy. This, this, <laughs> out of all things, I I just I couldn't. Yeah, he gets tired. He so he decides to like hide behind the couch. And he literally falls asleep. Yeah, just behind the couch. Like, he's like, I'm going to lay down behind the couch in case I doze off while I'm waiting to murder a man in his own home. Like, you know, I have insomnia. So maybe I'm not the best litmus test for this. But I just don't think I'd be able to sleep if I was in someone's home who I was planning on murdering. Here's what I can relate to. Because I don't have insomnia. I sleep pretty regularly. What I can relate to is being so nervous that I have to shit. So I can under I can relate to the previous part where he can shit on command because <laughs> that's where my guts would be if I was trashing someone's home and plan to kill them. That's where that's I fair. would be at. I'd be like shitting myself like crazy. It'd be I mean, if you're gonna shit yourself in someone's house when you're planning on killing them, it might as well be on a portrait of their mother. I mean, really. Right. Who right. are you trying to impress at this point? Right. Oh, God. Anyway, so now, so Alan's, again, switch scenes. Alan's talking to dispatch. He's like, what the hell? He gets this crazy message, and he starts heading to the station to help John the Point. He's still, key thing here, he still thinks it's Hugh Priest. Yep. All right? All right, so now we have, we have Clut. Uh, he finally, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but he finally hears Lenny's cries for help. He he is the one who finally figures out that Hugh Priest stole his car. That's important. Yep. And and he's like trying to reach dispatch and he's like, what the hell? I can't I can't reach anybody. Yeah, I think there's a, a line in there like hell of a time for Sheila to use the bathroom. Yep. And there's a repeated refrain throughout this. We're about to see of people calling the police station and just not being able to get anyone, which we kind of have had some setup throughout this entire book that we haven't talked much about. They've several times we've had reference to this janky ass system they have in their uh, for their phones. And like they have a system to redirect it to Alan's house phone when no one's on duty in the office. Like, yeah, communication's about to fail. Right. Because, again, this is a small, quiet town. You're you're relying on the fact that, A, probably nothing is ever going to happen. And if something does happen, which it won't, it's li- it's going to be like one tiny, one tiny thing. They are not in any way set up for like four major things to be going on at the same time. 
Which I think and is that's exactly, exactly why, yeah, why Gaunt's here. Because, like, right. his shit wouldn't work in a big city. Oh, no. It just, yeah, it's, it, he doesn't have enough time in a day, right? Like, we've already seen that he has to have some sort of direct intervention in, in many places. So a big city, he just can't do this, right? Right. So, yeah, we cut back to the bar, and we hear the car pull up, and we hear, and Billy goes outside, and Billy gets shot, and Henry is desperately calling the police, but there's no answer. Right. And I, and this scene honestly uh, was really was really we, we can talk about it a little bit later. But this is one of the most exciting scenes because he pulls up, he hears like bang bang bang, right? He thinks it's like a car at first, you know, like car backfiring or whatever, right? And and yeah, definitely not not the case. Uh, and yeah, his his I guess assistant or like bar bar hand or whatever, yeah, basically gets killed. Yep. So I think he likes like I believe Billy like stumbles back in, which is when he's like, oh, that was not a car backfiring. That was a gun. Yeah. But he can't get a hold of the police. Right. All right. Bam. Uh, so then it goes to the next scene, which is Lester still beating the shit out of John LaPointe. Oh, yeah. Um, like slamming his head against the ground. Oh, yeah. Big time. And, and the dispatcher finally grabs a shotgun. And then we immediately go. Uh, to the next scene, which I think like Norris is finally coming back to the station. Yeah, Alan Alan's gets coming to back the to the station, station and then all- Buster Keaton comes out of nowhere and slams his car into Norris's car. Straight again, up T bones him. Oh yeah, like and uh, Alan and we're getting this all from Alan's perspective, and it's great because it starts with like Alan when Alan got back to the station, he saw the first unqualified good thing he'd seen all that day, which was Norris getting there. He's like, thank God Norris is supposed to be on vacation today, but he's here. He can help. And then he just sees Norris's car get T-boned. Yep. Exactly. And then like Buster gets out of the car and starts stalking towards Norris's car. And we switch back to the bar. (laughs) Right. And then this is where finally Hugh uh, shoots uh, Henry and Henry finally is able to grab his shotgun and then, bam! We switch to the, we switch to the next scene, which is uh, the dispatcher. Her name is Sheila, by the way. Yep. This was this this part was crazy to me too. She so the first part makes sense. She cannot get a clear shot. She is holding a shotgun, and it's two guys fighting. She does not want to screw around, but she does have the opportunity to hit Lester with the shotgun, like actually physically hit him, not shoot him, but hit him. As like a as like a blood. Yeah, shot. she keeps yelling for like John to get out, like duck and get out of the way. And then there's this moment where she's where it says like then she realized he can't like he's basically unconscious at this point. His head slammed against the ground. Right. So she just grabs the gun by the barrel and fucking hits Lester across the head. And he and she hits him so hard that she kills him. Crazy. Yep. So now we've already had like two people die already. And oh, yeah. several other people injured as fuck at this point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so then we go back outside. Alan cuffs Keaton because he knows he needs to run into the uh, station. And like he... Norris is flipping out on Keaton. Oh, um, yeah. Alan is starting to pick up like little bits of there's something more going on here, but doesn't have the time to get into it. Right. And he cuffs Keaton to like the handle of his own car. Yep, and then Alan gives Norris a gun because he didn't have his gun on him. I think he was like off duty or whatever. Yep. 
and they start heading into the building. All right. So then we go back to the bar of, of Hugh and Henry. They, I think they like, they shoot each other again and you get the feeling like Hugh's pretty much dead at this point. Yep. And yep. Henry, he's not doing good. Oh yeah. No, nope, he's he he not doing good. Uh, and he's again, he's trying, he's trying to reach dispatch. He's trying to call the sheriff and he's like, what the hell is going on? You know? So we go back to the, to the sheriff's office. Mind you, Sheila just killed somebody. She runs out and Norris almost shoots her. Like at the oh, yeah. very nick of time, we have that sexy cat-like quickness of, of Alan, the sheriff. And oh, he like, exactly. and he like butts the arm of like Norris. He, it even says he, he doesn't have time to say anything. The only thing he can rely on is his sexy cat-like quickness. And mm -hmm. he like, pushes the arm away from Nora. So, so yeah, Norris fires a shot. Yeah. It just right. misses because he got slapped out of the way. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, we go back to, we go back to Henry real quick. Uh, again, he's, he's like, he's dying. He's like, Oh yeah. There's this blood. bit where in that, where it's like, you know, he should have been calling someone else because they, they couldn't answer, but this is all that his like dying brain can think to do is call over and over. Yeah. He has no strength left. And oh and, my God, like, he gets an answer. Someone yeah. picks up the phone. We, yeah, we cut back to the cop station and Norris picks up the phone and basically says, we're busy. Deal with it yourself and hangs up. Yes. Right. And that's to Henry. Henry's sitting there dying. And that's what he hears. Uh, also, I still, you know, if you're following along again, this is chaotic. The whole chapter is chaotic. They still, they being Norris and Alan still think that it's Hugh Priest who is in, who attacked the the, the sheriff's office. Yeah. Still, I had to say this bit in the audiobook where Henry, we get Henry's reaction to Norris saying, "Don't bother us now. We have an emergency. You have to call back later." The narrator, who is Stephen King, there's a line. What did you say? He whispers, and. It was the most mournful thing I have ever heard. I can't do it justice, but it was like, what did you say? Oh. It was so good. I wish I had it like queued up, but oh my God. Good. Stevie King. Stevie King. Uh, then, mm. then we go back to Henry and he literally doesn't even have the strength to hold the phone anymore. Yep. Um, so he, he pretty much drops the phone. He's not calling anybody. Um, then we go back to the sheriff sheriff's office. And Alan finally looks at the body, and it's pretty fucked up, but he realizes that it is not Hugh Priest. Yep. Then we go back outside to Buster. He tries to get away. And he's he's gotten a huge crowd staring at him at this point. I mean, oh, yeah. It's like everybody's staring at him. Someone in front of the, this police station and then got handcuffed to his car. Like people are freaking out. Their shots were fired. Everyone's looking. Yeah, everybody. This is the town selectman. Everybody knows who this is. This isn't a nobody. Okay, <laughs> like everyone knows. This is a big deal. Seeing the town selectman be like handcuffed to a car. And of course, we all know Keaton. Him staring at everyone, staring at him. These are definitely the persecutors. Oh yeah, right. And we get this bit where he's like, "Everyone in this town's against me. Every single person." except gaunt and yep. if i listen real careful i can hear gaunt in my head telling me what to do exactly yep mm. uh then then we're we're gonna go to the next scene which is a, a part of a commercial break 
yep. part of a joke. But basically, the the person that finds the bar, the scene at the bar, is a Budweiser driver. It 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 really oddly it really felt like Stephen King was getting some sort of ad revenue. <laughs> like I don't really. It almost. I was like, of course it's a Budweiser driver, or because if it wasn't him, it had to be like a Pepsi guy. I guess I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, so he he finds it. We don't get any more details. Uh, it goes on to the next scene. Lapointe, John Lapointe, he's he's pretty banged up, but he tells Alan that the guy who attacked him was Lester. Yep. Okay. Then we're going. We're finally going back to. We're finally going back to. Gosh, what's his name? Uh, it, so George Nelson gets home, and you know Frank Jewett is asleep. Um, so George Nelson finds his home. It's all wrecked. Okay, he's like, "What the hell is going on here?" He still doesn't know somebody's in his house yet. Still yep. doesn't know. He finds his personal Coke stash. Don't worry, it's good. So we have yet another character explaining to us how important yeah. cocaine is. We got cocaine, two in this book. The, the two moral... different people being cucked by Elvis. Two <laughs> different cocaine dealers. Right. And and I would say that um right, if if this was this is basically I, I don't know how your schooling went, but I remember like when, when I was in high school and college, the big thing that I had to do was figure out themes for books, which I always felt like was a was a big load of trash. But mm-hmm. the 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 two themes of this book is uh Elvis Presley and Cocaine is great. That's Yeah, I mean if you get nothing else from this podcast, please understand that doing gratuitous amounts of coke while fucking Elvis Presley is actually the only way to live. If you are not doing those two things, what are you even doing? Yeah, uh, I guess legal disclaimer: don't do a bunch of coke and fuck ghost El- Elvis. I don't even know how that would work, but if you figure it out, don't tweet me how. Yeah. Wink, wink. Yeah, right. Don't send uh. me the DMs. You know? So yeah, we get we get George freaking out about you know all his missing coke and the fact that someone took a big steaming dump on a picture of his mom. Like yeah. that might literally be adding insult to injury here. Like, oh yeah, big like, time. Huh, I'm down three thousand dollars and someone shat on a picture of my mom. Like I I would be pretty screwed up as an individual right now. Like just seeing all of this, I'd be messed up. I feel really bad for George T. Nelson if he wasn't a pedophile. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of, like, both of them together, you're kind of just like, eh, whatever. I hope they kill each other. It's fine. Yeah. But, like, okay, yeah, that's the next section with them. But, like, so between then, we jump from there, we get another bit of Buster, and Buster... He, like, gets into his car somehow. Like, he does this weird thing where he's, like, yeah, climbing in through the window and, like, contorting his body... And someone in the town, I can't remember who it is, someone in the town comes up and is like, uh, Danford, I don't think you're supposed to go anywhere. Aren't you under arrest? And he yeah. just kicks the dude in the face. And then by the end of it, like, dude falls, he gets in his car and starts driving off, and he tries to run the guy over. Yeah, right. Guy just... rolls out of the way, so he only runs over his hand. Mm-hmm. Like, Keaton may not get reelected, is what I'm saying. <laughs> He's, well... Uh, we have, we have politics are weird. So we'll, we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. You just, you just never know. All right. Oh God. That might yeah. be enough to get people fired up. But basically what you need to know about Keaton is he is absolutely in a bad place. Yep. So then, then we go back to Frank Jewett. Now this, this, 
scene get, just gets weirder. So I think Nelson gets like super. He doesn't know what the hell's going on. And he like just lays back into his couch, right? Yeah, he finds his dead parakeet. That's what pushes him over the edge. Yeah, so he just like lays back, like you know, like you've had a long day, so you don't just sit in your couch, you like fall into your couch. This is essentially what he does, and it causes the couch to like move backwards a little bit because, because mind you, Jewett moved it a little bit forwards, and then Frank Jewett literally gets stuck behind the couch, like to the point where he can barely breathe. He's like, oh, he's going to come near the couch. I'm going to pop up and stab him. Oh, it's going to be good. And then he's like, oh, wait, I can't move or breathe. I'm going to die. And like (laughs) this was almost felt like some weird, as I was saying, like some weird comedic like break. Like it was such a it was so dumb that I thought it was supposed to be played for comedy. And I'm like. Yeah, this started as a as a fight between pedophiles. I don't know if this is where we should be getting our funnies from. I don't know. The whole thing just felt weird because of where it started. Right. You know, exactly. It's like Frank straight up almost dies. Like he is a couple moments from death when George eventually gets off the couch and he's able to push it slightly to get some to be able to breathe. Right. Exactly. And like, so Nelson, I almost said Norris. Nelson. Uh, I think he decides to go to Gaunt because he realizes that he's probably the only person that can help. Well, he's on the phone with someone. I don't know if we ever know who he's on the phone with, but it's like, oh, that's right. That's why my... it's like a yeah. friend of his. And he's like talking. They killed my um, they killed my uh, bird. They took my stash, you know, and he's like, I need someone who can get me weapons. And the person's like, why? Well, he, he listens. He's like, you know, no, I want weapons. And then he heads off to Gaunt because this is the, the person he's talking to gave him that suggestion. Right. And then, so I'm going to, I'm going to, there's two more scenes left in this chapter and I'm going to, I'm going to flip flop them if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, cool. The, at the very end of the chapter, uh, Gaunt basically flips over his sign to his store and he says, uh, close until further notice. And the second to last part of this chapter was personally, um, and this is actually going to be even hard for me to talk about uh, during this recording. This is brutal. But this this was probably one of the hardest things that I have ever read in my entire life. Like seriously, like this scene, um, I, I could barely make it through it. It was very tough. It was very emotional, and I, and I kind of feel uh, a little taken back by it. You know, even thinking about it right now. So basically, we have you know Brian Rusk. Right, who is the the twelve year old kid who threw the rocks? Where this all started? Where it all started, and he at this point he knows that basically he knows that he was the catalyst behind you know the two women getting into this thing, uh, and he basically uh, grabs he grabs a gun and his his brother finds him and he's in he's in the garage and you definitely get the vibe that he's you know about to kill himself and he basically talks about how sandy koufax is not even all that great anyway whatever and then his brother's really confused because it's not even a sandy koufax card you know yep um and he makes his brother promise to never go to needful things yeah he he says he he now knows that gaunt is is just poison and his brother's like begging him to like not not do anything 
is heart wrenching, but it is really well written. Like it is. This feels like a thing that people are going to gut it, reaction. Right. Like you should never write that. And I, I disagree with that as a concept. I think that this scene was important and absolutely brutal, but really well written and shows the stakes of this. Well, I, right. And, and I think that, you know, the reason why it hit me, it, it's even hard for me to talk about right now. And the reason why is because it is so well written. And that's why it hits so hard. If this was not well written or if it was glossed over in any way, um, it, it wouldn't have hit so hard. And and I'm glad that you brought this up to where, you know, it's well written and that's why it has such an impact. And that's why it is so important to the story. I, I, I made I believe in that entirely because I made the opposite argument when it came down to Jewett being a child pedophile. Right. Because when they when and I, so I know this is going to sound weird, like these, these two things are completely unrelated. But my argument why why I hated that scene so much is because none of the characters around him responded in a realistic way. Exactly, and it and it made it feel like why are you why are you Stephen King writing in that he is a child pedophile, but you're not giving it any of the emotional weight or trauma that it should. And the whole scene just comes off flat and unbelievable. Especially right? when we see the follow-up on that storyline. I mean, both Jewett and George T. Nelson were introduced for this reason, for that storyline. They weren't major characters that are now on this part. They were. This is their story. And yeah. it really feels like everything we've seen since that point has almost been played for laughs. Like gallows humor style laugh and it just yeah it's like weird. even even this original scene right where it's like you know i talked about this last last episode and it still bothers me it's like oh he's a child pedophile he's gonna get ran out of town literally the the thing that people are saying is he's gonna get ran out of town not arrested not indicted not like hey we're gonna call the police right now like he's gonna get ran out of town it, it's taken so lightly it's it's why why is this in the book and you talked about there are certain subjects that are so sensitive if you're going to include them and this is what i concluded from what you're saying so i might be wrong but there are certain subjects that are so sensitive that if you're going to include them in your story as a writer you need to make sure that you give them the proper weight and impact that they should have and you need to do it in a way that's very believable and this is why this Brian Rusk chapter is – I'm not going to lie. This whole chapter is so chaotic and it's so crazy, and I was so excited, right? And it goes by so quick. Everything's going on. People are getting shot. People are getting hit by cars. And I'm pretty getting, sure – Their nose broke. It's cra- People are shitting on things. Like, it's crazy, yep. right? And the Brian Rusk section, I think, is the longest continuous section of this chapter. It is. And, and you slow down pace. And, oh. and you – and after I read this, I'm not. When I finished this chapter, I had to stop reading. Same. The, the emotional impact was so severe on me. I I put the book down. And I was like, I I need a little bit of a break. Um, it yes, it this is it, it's so weird. This is why we this is why we talk about Stephen King because he has such a range where he has such bad writing in certain sections, and then you come to a section like this. And it's it's so impactful. It feels real. 
Yep. You know, and anyway, so it's Oof. yeah, it's it's brutal. It's a it's really well written, and it's like I think the only other thing I want to point out there is like we get once again that continued theme that their mom is so absorbed with her Elvis glasses, she's just not a part of their li- lives anymore. Like Sean tries to go to his mom to be like something's wrong with Brian, and she chews him out because. She wants to be wearing her Elvis glasses, dancing around in her nightgown. Right. And and I don't know where this story is going. So I want to make another prediction here. So I made one previous prediction. Um, and I said by the end of this section, either Lester or Sally Ratcliffe would be dead. Yep. I, I said, I, I don't know how it's going to happen, but that's my prediction. And I'm not going to lie. If you're listening to this, it's an easy prediction. You know? We we know the stakes of the game already. It's an easy one. I get it. Um, I wasn't I was, expecting not to see Sally at all, though. Yeah, but I was right. I want to put that out there. Lester is dead. Yeah, so I was right. I would never prediction. have guessed who killed him. But I, yeah, I would have never right. Oh yeah, it's the dispatcher. I feel like we're playing Clue now. It's yeah. the dispatcher with the shotgun handle. Whatever you know, <laughs> in the in the sheriff's office. I don't know. Um, uh, anyway, so I'm going to make another prediction here at, at some point, this is preloading as hard as this scene is to read. And this is one of the hardest scenes I think I've ever read. It's going to be very tough for me to read the scene where his mom comes down from the obsession, the, the curse or whatever, the charm or whatever mm-hmm. it is that Leland Gaunt's doing. And realizes that her her twelve year old son committed suicide. Yeah, and she is going to, and she's she's home. Why this happened? I, I believe. I believe. Oh yeah, she is. She's point. got the glasses on in her bedroom. Right. So there's no way that that scene is not written later. Okay. So my my prediction is probably that his. This is and this is a stretch, so I might be wrong about this one. But his mom may commit suicide as well. Mm, let's see that. And I'm not going to say Mike because it's a prediction. So I'm going to say that she is as bad as a prediction as that as that's going to be. <laughs> uh, I'm going to make that prediction because it it adds a little bit more stakes to the game. Um, I I think that's what's going to happen. I had a note on Cora Rusk, and something I've been thinking about for a few episodes now. I don't think we're ever going to see Cora Rusk do a favor. And I think it's because she didn't do a favor. I think what she traded for those glasses was her gossip around town. Like, we started this book out with Cora being this character who knew everything that was happening around town. She was the town, the small town gossip. But she was always on the phone, you know? Right. And we haven't heard any of that, but it was set up before she met Gaunt. She buys these glasses. We never see any indication she's had to pay a price and suddenly gaunt knows the inner workings of the town i think that's what gaunt got from her he was like hey tell me all the fucking give me the tea tell me what's going on in this town because he kept asking people for favors but not telling them what they were and then it feels like okay now i found the person who knows everything now i do my diabolical plotting now i call people in and call in those favors oh man that's that's a way better prediction than I had. I just, that yeah, makes I think, a lot of sense. I think that's because, like, we've had this like issue of like, what does he and doesn't he know? And 
we we can clearly tell he's got some psychic connection to anyone who's bought one of his items. But yeah, a lot of his knowledge are from other people, and I'm realizing all of that could be from Cora Rusk, who hasn't had to pay anything for her, you know, Elvis time. Well, you know, that that not directly. There's been <laughs> yeah. cost. Right. Uh I'm trying to I'm trying to think if we missed anything. I think you're right though. Man, that makes a lot of sense too. Well, Narrative, narratively speaking, that fits really well. And unless you have any more thing more in 17, I think we did pretty good for 17. We covered that reasonably quickly. Uh, we yeah, we tried and we did. We missed a lot of details. It was chaos. It it's was pure, really well done. Right. And, man, overall, chapter 17 was one of the best chapters I've read in any book, period. Damn. Seriously. That's a big statement. It. It really is a, a magnificent chapter because you're you're this is just good writing. Th this is this is what happens when you build upon a storyline for 600 pages and you do something with it. Yep. Right. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, we uh, the podcast, the, we've, we've talked about this in the past, right, where Salem's lot, we, we, we set up a bunch of things and then it's kind of like, nah, exactly like. The the epilogue right. started getting kind of nifty. <laughs> right. I'd like to read the more of that. Right. So but this is something that I feel like very few writers can do because the reason why this the reason why this chapter can exist, the reason why we can go scene to scene to scene, you know, with all these things going on and they all have impact is because we all have meaningful backstory to each one of these threads that were interesting. Yep. Uh, Again, I think kudos. The only real thing we missed talking about in 17, I just want to point out, is while Alan was at Public Works, uh, we saw all the dynamite that was ordered being moved in. So that's all. Oh, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. But of uh, course, that's never going to come up again. Of course. So that, uh, yeah. So on to 18. On to 18. And Polly. 18 a lot less frenetic. I'll give it that. So yeah, we're we're back to regular chapters, but 18 is very important. Yep. First of all, it's the last chapter of this section. Uh Deal of the Century, I think, was this was the title of this section. Yep. I believe. And uh it's also when we get our boy Ace back. Mm. Oh, very that's yes. That's yeah, we start important. with Polly, and Polly is going to do her payment, her trick she needs to play and she's out out at this old place and basically she has to dig up this can clearly the treasure ace is looking for and she's supposed to burn everything in it and replace it with a note and we get this internal dialogue from her being like i mean there's no way that this prank could hurt alan there's no way i know for a fact it's going to I know Alan and Ace have a history. I know this yeah. is going to screw Alan, but there's no way this could hurt Alan. And now ugh. I'm going to come to her defense a, a little bit here. And, and I'm going to say that, like, there's a huge fine line between, like, ah, whatever. I know something like this probably isn't going to work out well for him. Like, out, like, Ace might cause him some issues. There's a huge, there's a huge fine line between, okay, this might be like a bad day for Alan, whatever. Between that, and what is probably going to happen, right? Like, that is true. No way, because she has no context. This whole chapter that we just talked about, it even this chapter eighteen even starts off by saying that 
It says Polly doesn't know anything that just happened. I don't oh, yeah. remember exactly what that, it says. That's been Gaunt's game the whole time, though. It's, I mean, no single one of these things, well, with the exception of some of the things Hugh Priest did, can you look at it and be like, okay, yeah, no, this is too far. Like, right. They're all like, okay, this isn't good, but no one could really expect the level of chaos that's come out of this. Right. And okay, so she's she's at this house and I think it makes actually a specific mention to like dogs. I think this is a huge tie in with Cujo. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is where Cujo happened because they basically say that without saying it. Right. And now like uh, my interest and I, I have never read Cujo before. Yeah, you've texted um, me like twice since our last recording. Like, hey, we I think we have to read Cujo. <laughs> and, and here's the deal. And I, I slightly mentioned this in the past. I've been chased and bit by dogs when I was a kid. I do have a very slight fear of dogs. It's it's not like an irrational fear. I can pet dogs. I can enjoy dogs. But I like if a have rabid a Saint Bernard came running at you, you wouldn't stand your ground. Hell no! I'm Congratulations, running. you're saying <laughs> right. I'm running. If any dog gives me the wrong look, I'm running. I'm like jumping into a lake. I'm jumping into a beehive. It, it's I will literally I'll jump off a cliff because that's where my fear is at with dogs. So. One one wrong look at all, I'm done. Like I will jump out of a window. I can't do it. Uh, <laughs> all right, it, we're gonna have to read Cujo then. <laughs> right, so Let's I'm gonna do be it. There. I I'm gonna have to call you late at night and be like, hey man, I just want you to talk me talk to me for a little while because I'm paranoid to go outside now because of dogs. Anyway, I thought I heard a growl. I thought I heard a growl. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't have the shining. How's this gonna work? <laughs> right. Uh, I've read Cujo way, way back. It was like the third or fourth Stephen King book I, I've read. And so I have vague memories of it. I know it's pretty short, though. We can do it as like an easy season. Yeah. It's like a bit longer than Carrie, if I remember right. Yeah. It's, a lot of those beginning books are because that was early, early in his writing career, I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, unless you have more to say about Polly, she, like in this can, she basically finds more of those, uh, what she finds like she finds some like pornographic photographs and some more of those like cash stamps that aren't worth any money anymore. No, well, hold, hold, okay, hold on. Let's what? we we a hundred percent cannot breeze through this like the book did. I I do have more to say about this part. Okay, okay, hit me up. I have, I have things to say about this part, and I had to read this more than once to make sure that I was reading it right. You describe it exactly how the book describes it. She finds some stamps and she finds a pornographic. I want to stress the pornographic photo is a woman having sexual intercourse with a dog. I did not pick up on that. That's a hundred percent. It might have been self-defense. What the book said. And now, now you almost have me paranoid. I'm like, did I just, did I read that wrong? Hold on. Because this has to be talked about. Hold on. Ah, oh, man. Can I find it? Can I find it? Uh, prior loose. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a bundle of gold bond trading stamps and several fading photographs of a woman having sexual intercourse with a collie dog. She took. Oh, yeah. I straight out. missed that. My brain was like, nope. Okay. Here's the thing. And then it describes she's taking them out, whatever, whatever, whatever. You're nonchalant. You missed it. That's fine. I miss details all the time because it's a long book. The, the important thing, though, is you missed it because it's mentioned so casually because Polly never even thinks about it. She's like, no, nah, it's whatever. It's some stamps and whatever, a girl fucking a dog, whatever. And it's insane. 
this is me back to having a huge gripe with Stephen King's inability to to write anything sexual and it be believable at all. Like, how is this taken so light? Polly literally gives it no second thought at all. Literally at all. I would. Like, yeah. What the hell am I looking at right now? What? This would be a major sort of impasse in my life. I'd be like, what the hell am I looking at right now? You wouldn't have to tell me to burn the photographs. I would do that immediately. This is crazy. This is yeah, absolutely crazy. I don't know how I just straight up missed that. Yeah, it was so casually tossed in. Right, and it's only said once. That's how casually it is. It's just like, oh yeah, she finds pictures of a woman fucking a dog. That's whatever. It's actually several photos. My bad. And then this is the same feeling that I felt in the whole like child pornography scene. I was like, why is this? Why is this not a big deal? Like, and and here's the thing: it the Stephen King writes these characters to not even think twice about it. Like, what? Anyway, so that was I. This is another really bad scene, I think, written from his perspective. Like, if you're going to add something crazy, do it for a purpose, right? Like, don't don't tell me that she finds pictures of a woman's multiple pictures of a room of a woman having sex with a dog, and then just literally don't do anything with it. I read this like section twice and I missed it. Yeah, what the? Okay. Because it's two words and it's never talked about again. It's crazy. It would be so easy I, to miss. What is the? Yeah, I'm just. I, I'm. I don't even know what to say. I, I'm. I don't know what the point of this is. Yeah, now, now you're completely lost. You're like, wait a second. I, what? Now I understand why you wanted to, to, to linger on this. It's like, what could you possibly have to say about that? Yeah. All right. You're like, yeah, if there's nothing else to talk about, we can just go to the next section. I was like, yeah, and I saw like, the, like, no, in your eyes. You're like, uh-uh, we have. I was like, what do I fucking do? Oh, my, okay. God, uh, are we good now, or does someone have sex with a bear that I missed? <laughs> right. I, dude, I, I don't know. Someone could explain that to us. I Maybe it comes up later. Maybe, maybe like, it's a scene from Coming off the high of writing a really good scene, a depressing, but really good scene, he's like, all right, someone fucks a dog. Let's get back on track. Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe this is a legitimate, like, central theme of Cujo. I, I literally have no idea, and this is just if another I'm, reason why. If we, if we read Cujo, and it's all about fucking dogs, and I somehow just don't remember that, <laughs> it's going to say a lot about my childhood. Yeah, right. Yeah, let's move uh, on before I start feeling bad. That's, <laughs> that's that's a trauma response. Anyway. Oh, uh, God. Anyway. Right. Uh, from there, we, we jumped to Ace, and Ace Wait, has been... So, I'm sorry. So she drops a, a letter. Right. She, like, she digs up this thing, burns a few things, and she drops this letter, and it says, like, and it's addressed to, like, the intrepid treasure hunter. Right. So... And then we get our intrepid treasure hunter, and he's getting a little bit discouraged. Like, so far, he's dug up a couple of these. He found some pennies, like iron pennies or something that aren't worth that. Like, yeah, steel pennies. Steel pennies. So, like, yeah. he keeps finding things that either aren't worth anything or are like, I can make 200 bucks off this. And he gets a bit discouraged, but old Ace has taught us what to do when we get discouraged coke until you aren't discouraged anymore that's right i mean it, apparently it works so this is basically ace being like man treasure hunting sucks 
Man, it's treasure right. hunting's awesome. Yeah, you you get the definite feeling like the the again the theme here is if is if you first don't succeed, well, do coke. Yeah, that's pretty much the theme. Oh yeah. Like, uh, <sighs> anyway, we check in on our old buddy Danforth, and he's not doing well. Um, we get a scene he's of him not- driving home, and. He is full, bo- full blown paranoid at this point. Like he's looking at the streetlights, thinking that their cameras watching him. Like the others have made their move, and now he needs to as well. Yeah, and he gets home. He he knows his wife is there again. He's he's handcuffed to the car. Yeah, he's got his hand out the uh, like out the car window, stuck to the outside. Oh. Right, and he's like honking on the horn so his wife can come out and help him out. And here's crazy. So we we switch to Myrtle real quick, his wife. She hears the the honking of the horn, and then we do a quick flashback. But this flashback is very very imp- well. I have a feeling it's going to be very very important anyway. Yeah. So we have this whole flashback of basically Myrtle. Which I'm like 99% she is planting a bomb next to one of like the religious, like I think it's like the glass casino night meeting. It's like a casino night planning meeting or something. Right. And I'm pretty sure she's planting a bomb. It it said it without saying it sort of thing. Yeah, they describe it in such a way that you're like, I'm pretty sure that's a bomb, but I actually don't really know what it looks like. Right. And the reason why it's so important to have a flashback is because then we flash forward to current time and mm-hmm. uh, she finally goes to the garage to help Keaton. And this does not go well. No, no. He uh, asked her to grab a tool. She shows some hesitation. So he grabs her by the hair and uh, pulls on her hair and refuses to let her go until he she gets him. I guess I got screwdriver and a hammer. And he ends up yep. knocking the, the handle off the door. Yep. And once he's finally unhandcuffed, he lets her go. And he's he's decided that Myrtle is one of the persecutors. Like that's right. He's decided uh, he she he, she was sleeping with Norris and was probably yep. there helping Norris put up those uh, tickets. Like it even goes so far in the narration to be like, and he had forgotten that she was there. At the restaurant with him. Yeah. And he's accusing of this. Right. And he even gets into it. He's like, oh, I know you drew me away from the house. So he could so he could start doing this. And then she was like, you invited me out. Like, you invited me. I, I, didn't, I didn't draw you anywhere. Right? But that's not enough. And then in defending herself, Myrtle makes an accident. Just, just a tiny mistake. And she accidentally cause old Danforth Keaton Buster. And how do I put this? How do I put this elegantly? Buster rokes the shit out of her. Yeah. With a hammer. Just yeah. uh, Yeah, Screaming, what did you call me? And just hits her in the head with a hammer over and over. Right. He goes, he goes full Jack Torrance on on his wife and and definitely kills her. And, And again, this this was a hard scene to read too, but we, I've I had read so many hard scenes before. Uh, oh yeah, no, my soul's dead enough. This one barely affected me. <laughs> yeah, right. It's bad, but after reading the the Brian Rusk one, uh, I was like, oh shit. 
Yeah. Um, all right. So th- then we find the, basically the last chapter or the last section of this chapter, which is we've already sort of known about this. I, I think it's mentioned it, but there's actually two treasures here at this at what I think is the Cujo house. Yeah. Ace, Ace finds the first one. It's completely worthless. Then he finds the second one, and he can tell that someone has recently dug this up. Like he sees like the fresh dirt and the shovel and all this all this stuff. He digs it up and he finds a note from what seems to be Alan, the sheriff. Yep. And it's Alan's like, oh yeah, he he had millions of dollars, but I took it. He's like cussing him out. He's basically saying, after I put you in jail, I started buddying up with him, and I saw oh, a map yeah. while he was in the bathroom, and I waited till he died, and I dug this one up, and and this and is what, a big one. And what sets him? Um, what sets Ace over the edge is there's a smaller envelope in there, and Alan, I'm air quoting here, ends yeah. this note by saying, "But don't worry, I didn't take everything. I left you exactly what you deserve." And Ace opens up this second envelope and a single dollar flutters out. That's right. Yep. And he flips his shit. Like to this point, he was just filled with this horror and like, I can't believe this. But once he sees that single dollar, he snaps. Like there's oh, yeah. mention that, oh, I'm going to give this dollar back to him. I'm going to cut off his balls and shove it inside his open ball holes. Oh, yeah. Um, I would love to pretend that that's not what was written. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what he says he's gonna do. So, uh, which honestly, one of the least terrifying things I had the content warn this episode for. Yeah, so, right. hey, we're we're getting better. We're getting better. Right. Um, whew, and that's okay. Chapter, that's, basically, that's literally two chapters. Uh, we've had three, maybe four people die. Five. Uh, we have, we have Myrtle, Brian Rusk. Probably Hugh Priest, you don't really know. Probably Henry Buford, you don't really know. Billy. Um, oh, we have Billy. We have uh, Myrtle. Lester. Or, yeah, we're, oh, we're yeah. Mentioned Le- uh, but Lester. I was going to keep going over and over until we have like 20. Yeah, we got a lot <laughs> of dead people. We got a bomb planted. We got Ace Merrill, who's uh, pretty much a, a time bomb himself now. We've got all the dynamite in town. And Buster on a full-on rampage on his own, unlocked. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So it, we got to do. <clears throat> I don't know how we're doing on time. I actually lost lost track of time at this point. We're fine. We but, actually got through that so much faster than I expected. We kind of kick I, ass. Well, you know, well, we are again. We are the we are the top uh, Stephen King podcast that I've ever done. Um, yeah. That, same. You know, that's, Right, that's kind of saying something. Um, I mean, I have done more than zero. <laughs> right. All right, so let's do predictions. I, I, I want to get into predictions here because I think we're. Oh, about, okay. I didn't look at it, but I think we're about. It just feels like we're about to get into the last section, right? I, I think we are looking at the page count here. We ended on page. I think we're about to get onto like page six. 35 out of like 800 we have three more episodes of chapters like before we do our wrap up oh wow okay yeah so we have a few things going on so we have uh, i made the prediction that lester was going to 
uh, or Lester or Sally was going to die. Now Lester has died. Where where do we think that that storyline is going to go now? Because now we have Sally, who's the the star-crossed lover or whatever. She's she's been betrayed. She has um, to be going after the girl in the photograph, like because we know she's going to revenge on someone, and it's clearly not going to be Lester. Like it, my it assumption really... is that before Sally finds out, she makes some kind of move against whatever I can't remember her name. The other, the woman in the photograph. And normally, I would disagree because we don't know anything about this other woman. But the key thing about this is we're about to start a new section, and we've already seen that these sections really have a huge uh, sort of shift in like tone. We like Stephen King was was very open with introducing new characters in section two. Weirdly enough, we saw Ace at the beginning of this part and at the end, not really in the middle. It was like opened with Ace, ended with Ace. Yeah, I think we're just getting. Um, but I think it was appropriate, though. Like, yeah. I think I, I think it's not as interesting. Out. Yeah. Um, so a anyway, so I think you might be on to that. I, I think that Sally might go after this woman. And I, I think that. The, the new section will probably introduce her as 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 a character, and we'll get to know her a little bit. So here's uh, my question: Does okay. Polly live through this? Ooh, okay. So okay, so these are the these are the good predictions. Um, mm -hmm. does, oh, does Polly live? Um, okay, my official prediction is, huh? My official prediction is that Alan and Polly will make it through. Okay. Even with that thing slithering around inside her Oscar? Yep. All right. Uh, Ace, I think Polly's dead. I, I think Stevie King likes frigid women. I'm, well, yeah, you're right. Um, but hey, The Shining, uh, you know, Jack Torrance died. That's fair. And his his wife and son made it. Uh, and she was like way stronger for it at the at the end. Like we we got that last epilogue chapter, which was pretty awesome. So I I'm gonna I'm gonna go along with that theme and say that that Polly and Alan survive all the well. There's only like two main bad guys at this point. So Ace Merrill's gonna die. Leland Gaunt's gonna be vanquished. I don't really know if he can die, but he'll be vanquished somehow. We already know how that's going to happen. A shadow puppet's going to blow him until he forgets his plot. I'm still not convinced that this entire book isn't just a shadow puppet play made by Alan. Oh my god. Alan is actually in Cujo, and while he's trapped waiting for the dog to go away, he's telling the story of needful things on the wall. Yeah, right. There you go. Yeah? Yeah? At the very end of this book, it'll say, continue with the real story in Cujo. Uh, like, and then oh, at the end of that book, it'll say, continue with the real story in Dreamcatcher. Dreamcatcher. But that's yep. true of every Stephen <laughs> King book. Very excited. Very excited. Oh, I can't that. wait. I can't wait. I also can't wait for the movie on this one. I, mm, I'm very excited for that. Like, the better this book gets, the more excited I am about that. What was it? 23% rated Rotten Tomatoes book a movie? Uh, oh, it's, it's bad. It's, I can't wait. It's really bad. Uh, so where... What, what do you think about we talked about a little bit earlier but what, what do you think about Cora Rusk what do you think because something has to happen like her I don't, I don't know died. like I think I don't know if something has to happen there though like I feel like for most authors yes we would absolutely get something going on with Cora Rusk and I think either you're right or we're never going to see her again 
because Stephen King does not mind just completely ignoring minor I think that characters. Make, I think that makes sense. Uh, obviously, the the religious battle is going to be that's going to be the huge thing in this chapter. Again, I feel like that bomb's going to go off pretty pretty early. The thing is, though, I couldn't find the exact quote, but I know somewhere in one of these chapters there was a throwaway statement of she blah 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 on the last day that Castle Rock really existed, and that was said in present time i think during chapter 17 so i'm pretty sure as we go into the next part shit is immediately going to hit the fan like i I think we are full-on immediately in the climax at least i know Uh, i have been because i've been doing a lot of work with (laughs) elvis yeah right so i would like to talk about something uh something else too before we sort of wrap this up as well so yeah i think you're so i think you're right about that i think for for Cora Rusk, you know, I think you're 100% right. It's either going to be a very impactful scene or we're literally never going to hear about her again. And yeah, I think that this whole thing is going to get pretty crazy starting out. But I, I want to go back to what I said earlier, where chapter 17 was probably one of the one of the best chapters out of any books I've ever read. And this whole book really has been consistently very good. Right. And I, I want to say... Oh, don't say it. I know what... Well, I know no. what that means. I know when you're getting to the end of a Stephen King book and it's been really good so far, what that implies. Right, because my my weird thing about this is that I've never heard anyone talk about this. And I thought I thought a lot about this. And I had this theory for a few days, but then I actually did myself. My theory was that Stephen King is actually not a popular writer. The only reason why Stephen King is popular is because of his movies, because people are terrible and they don't read. And I was like, well, this makes sense. Like, I, I went on this theory for like days. I was like, yeah, I mean, why is The Shining so popular? It's a good book, but everyone remembers the movie. It, the book, fuck the book. It's not good. <laughs> Whatever, fight me. It's not good. It's so long. It, it meanders. It, it's, it, there's a lot. I just got to say, it's hilarious it. hearing these arguments from someone who loves The Stand. Just saying. I love The Stand. I absolutely love it because even though it does also meander, everything is super believable and the characters are likable and the subplots are interesting. Anyway, um, so I was like, maybe that's just it. Maybe the fa- maybe it's just Stephen King is only because of movies and m- more people watch movies than read books. But then I was like, well, the Dark Tower series, regardless of how you may or may not feel about it, the Dark Tower series was pretty popular before they started making it into a movie or a series. I don't, I can't remember what they were doing. I'm not sure. But the, the gist of it was every, I felt like a lot of people were like, man, you really need to make this into a series. So there was, there was already this, this following. So again, that, so that brought me back to square one. Cause I was like, well, okay. So why, why is this book not talked about? I, I don't, I mean, maybe the next 120 pages are horrible. Because Maybe at this point, that's the only plausible explanation that I can really think of. You know, I I've got my fingers crossed that the rest of this book is at least passable because I've enjoyed the hell out of it to this point. I right. mean, we have some qualms and we've talked about those qualms, but overall, really enjoying this. Right. The the only thing that I mean, again, it would have to be bad. Like he would, we joked about this. It would literally have to be in ten pages for them to say, "Oh yeah, this is actually just Alan doing shadow puppets, and none of this is real." And the remaining hundred pages would be out of him doing shadow puppets for a hundred pages. 
that would be the only, almost the only thing at this point that would really bring this down so low for me. I really anyway. hope that you're not setting this up for like a dramatic like turn where we're just like, okay, I didn't see that coming and I hated it. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, well, fingers crossed. Threw me wrong. Yeah. Uh, all right. Should we tell the people what we're reading next? Um. I, yeah. I think. I think that's that's probably a good bet. All right. We're doing uh chapters nineteen through twenty-one. Back to three chapters. Ooh, three. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I forgot how to do that. I know. And we're going into part three. Everything must go. Good. God. Good time. I, uh, I yeah. I around in this podcast. Uh. You, oh. I think. I think the endings have been mine lately. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Uh. Well. Uh, thanks for stopping in. Um. You've got the Elvis photograph, and we'll we'll check you next week. Hole in the Wall Book Club is a part of the Isonier Productions Network and produced and edited by Anthony Sheets. The music in this episode is Supernatural Radio by Kevin McLeod. There'll be a link to his license and website in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of us, tweet us at Isonier or send an email to Isonier at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to tell a friend or leave us a review on your podcatcher of choice. Word of mouth and five-star reviews really help us get out in front of more people and let us expand and do more things. More information on the show can be found on IcyNear.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.